Welcome to the Project Unchained podcast, where my special guests and I help you break free from the chains that hold you back from life's greatest experiences. The goal of this podcast is to educate people on self-care modalities that can and will improve your life if you commit to doing them. An effective self-care regimen is the single most important thing that you can do for yourself to have a more extraordinary life experience. I'm your host, Ross Leppola, and I've spent the past several years of my life on a journey of healing and self-care after living my first 28 years chained down by my own limiting thoughts and beliefs. Now, I'm here to share what I've learned with you to empower you to break free from the chains that hold you back from your unlimited potential. Let's get unchained. When you were lost in the woods, you were misunderstood by everyone, everyone. You were searching for words, but they came out absurd. And no one heard you, no one heard you speak your Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Project Unchained podcast. I am super excited to share with you the conversation that I had with Lainey Liberty today. She is an incredible human, wonderful light in the world. Lainey is an author, a speaker, a community leader, and an advocate for alternative education. She has been working on a lot of really cool stuff for teens. She does transformative mentoring for teens. It supports the mental health of adolescents. She wrote an incredible book, Seen, Heard, and Understood. It's quickly become a bestseller. It's for parents that really lots of tools for us parents to help empower our kids and our teens to be mentally ready to take on the world and have a a strong sense of mental well-being. Super excited about her book. It's absolutely fantastic. And she is the co-founder and facilitator of Project World School. And that offers different retreats for teens to create temporary learning communities around the world. And it's really cool to hear her experience and her story of how her son and her have done this together and the things that they do. And it's just, it's absolutely incredible. And I'm super excited to share all that with you. So Let's just get into it without further ado, y'all. Lainey Liberty. Lainey, my friend, thank you for joining me today on the Project Unchained podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Why don't we just start out with a little general, who is Lainey? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful way to start. Start at the beginning. Um, right. Most of the time when I talk about my origin story, which gives a little bit of background to why I'm doing the work that I do and wrote the book and, and the things that I'm passionate about, it really brings us back to 2008. And I'm originally from California. And in 2008, the economy crashed in California. And at the time, I was a business owner. Actually, I still am. Um, but I had worked in marketing, branding, and advertising for the last 18 years. And the last eight of those years, it was I had my own agency. It was a green eco company that focused on branding and advertising campaigns um, for nonprofits. And it was wonderful. But when the economy crashed, um, I 
started to see my clients go away left and right. And at yeah. the same time, I was, a, like I said, still am a single parent. And one of the things that my son, I have one child at the time, he was nine. And he would say to me all the time, mom, you're always working. You never spend any time with me. And that kind of cut through my heart like a jagged knife. It was just such a hard thing to hear and the cognitive dissonance of, but I'm doing this because this is what's expected of me and I'm providing for my family, but you're the most important thing to me. And it just like something didn't sit right. And although... Yeah. You know, like we had everything that we ever wanted. Financially, we were fine. We we weren't happy. And so one evening late in 2008, I had this inspired idea and I turned and turned around and he was sitting in the office with me. It was like nine o'clock at night, too late to be in the office, especially for a nine-year-old, right? Right. And I turned around and I said to him, his name is Miro. I said, Miro, what do you think if we just get rid of all of this stuff and go have an adventure? And he's like, stopped his game, turned around, looked at me. And he's like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, one question before I answer. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, do I have to go to school? And I said, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. So that was it. That was the beginning of of what became a really big shift in our lifestyle. Um, it covered, you know, like our life was filled with all sorts of things like partnership parenting, um, world schooling, unschooling, uh, tools for mental health, building community. And um, then that was sort of the... Um, premise that started me working with teens. And I could talk about that too. But really, that was the beginning, which started all of it. Um, when we left in 2009, our goal was to travel for one year and leave California and just head south and make our way all the way down to Argentina. We were going to end up at the tip of uh, Argentina, Ushuaia, and then come home. But um, that was about 14. We're just starting on our 15th year away from the United States. We never went back and we still haven't made it to Argentina. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. What, so then what, what stopped you from making it to Argentina? Oh my gosh. Well, like I said, the, the things that I talk about a lot, because the things that were alive for us, um, were partnership. And, you know, having a child who said I didn't spend time with him, I wanted at every opportunity to be able to say yes. And that was really our goal. And, and because I said that to him, I said, you know what, let's come up with our framework that makes this trip our adventure. And I really want to do this in partnership. And so we talked about all the different things and I call it my <laughs> scaffolding, the things mm -hmm. that we, we defined and used to make us feel safe and secure. And it gave us sort of a, a like a guide to, you know, if we ever needed it, we had this, this scaffolding to look back on. Um, one of the things was we were going to say yes more often 
as long as it was, you know, the caveat is as long as it was in, in alignment with our core values, we were going to live without rules, no rules at all. I didn't care that society said a child should be in bed by eight o'clock. We were going to make up our own rules. And again, the gauge that we were going to use and did use and still use is to check to make sure that these things, again, are in alignment with our values. And that took some time to actually define what my core values are, for him to define what his core values were, and then to bring that together and we defined our family core values. So that became our guide. Um, the other thing that we did is every, every decision that we made was going to be in partnership. It wasn't about me taking him around the world. It was about us having this side-by-side adventure. And, um, finally we were going to just question everything that was going to be one of the, the general themes of our trip. And we've remained, you know, it's an integrated part of ourselves, which really helps us tap into our natural curiosity. So the question, why we never made it to Argentina, about eight months into our travels, we were as far as Guatemala. And that's not that far south from where we started. We, Because we were doing everything in partnership, we realized that slowing down really gave us a sense of cultural immersion. We realized that um, we didn't have to do anything anywhere at any time. So that gave us the the freedom to really be present in our own lives. And at eight months into our travels, because one of our um, sort of, you know, main themes was we were going to say yes, Miro said to me, Mom, can we just do this forever? And I checked. It was in alignment with our values. It was working for us. Um, and there was no reason for me not to say yes. So I said yes. And that became, you know, yes, we're saying yes to the things that come up. And many of the things that came up for us was really exploring at a slower pace than a lot of families that are doing a one-year gap year. You know, they have one limited amount of time and they have to get all this stuff done in that amount of time. Well, suddenly when we said yes to not having an end date, it freed us up to really be present. So we ended up nine months in Guatemala and a year in in Ecuador, six months in Panama, three years in Peru, um, we just said yes to what felt right and recognized it was an amazing way to live life and the accountability for our own internal worlds, our own emotional intelligence became a huge part of our family culture. It was actually one of our tools. Because in order to say a wholehearted, emphatic yes, you have to know what's going on inside. And 
both my son and I became hyper aware of these internal worlds. And we also recognize that our outer world experiences were a result of everything that was happening internally. And so that really became an integrated part of our lives. And I couldn't imagine living my life any other way. The first nine, 10 years of my son's life, I feel like I missed out because I really wasn't present and that, you know, he's now 24. He just left, by the way. That's why I was running a little late. We had a wonderful breakfast. He popped up here. I We both live in Mexico, but right. we don't live together anymore because, well, he's 24 now. <laughs> right, right. And um, yeah, so that that sort of answers why we didn't make it to Argentina. We stayed in different places for different periods of time. And we decided that it was really lovely to have bases. So as I said, Peru became our base for three years because we fell in love with it. It was amazing. Um, there were times where we didn't have a base and we just traveled. Um, about four years into our travels, three and a half, four years into our travels, my son and I co-founded a company together. And that was really meeting the needs of my son who at 13 and 14 started to feel isolated and really had the desire to be in community with more people. And he wanted to meet people his age. And it was difficult for him to connect with say the potato farmers and in, in Peru and in, in the Andes where we lived. And although we integrated ourselves into the communities surrounding community and had so many local friends because that's really the point there was still this thing that um really left my son with the desire to be in community of his peers and so one evening as we're having these conversations you know he was feeling he called it a, a situational depression and that was a really keen awareness of what was happening inside of him. He desired something, really needed something in his life, and those needs weren't getting matched. However, on the flip side, returning to a conventional life was not something that he wanted to do either. Right. So me being the problem solver and the creative person that I am, I said, well, then why don't we just bring teens to us and, and we'll host uh, like a temporary learning community here because we're learning so much. And that was the birth of Project World School, which has been running for the last 10 years. Right. And we've brought maybe around 200 teenagers to different places in, on the planet to have these immersive month-long uh, learning communities in different countries. And it's been amazing. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey. But again, we never, we still have not headed south. I'm talking to you today from Mexico. Right. Um, we still have not made it as far south as Argentina. But one day we've been to Chile, just not our, and, and right. uh, Olivia, just not as far south yet. Right. But there's still time. There's still time, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's interesting. There's, I feel like there's so many different places that this, conversation can go and so many different yeah. things to unpack. Yeah. And I, I suppose I need to be, remember to be mindful here of like the theme and, and the things that I want to get at with mental health and well-being. Yeah. And one of the big things that really stood out to me that 
I believe is a co-contributor or is is a primary contribution to the mental health and well-being of a young person is the parent being in partnership with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I come from, from a background of having uh, a, a traumatic childhood. I had a lot of trauma in my childhood and my teen years were riddled with all kinds of self-sabotaging acts and anger and really not understanding who I was. I felt invisible. I felt like I was never seen or heard or understood, hence the name of my book. Right. Um, and I spent a lot of years. I, one of the things that I knew, like, like I was going to take my next breath, when I was a child, I knew I always wanted to be a parent. I, that was that was a huge part of of my you know sort of sense of self. And having this sort of really traumatic tra- childhood and adolescence, I knew into my young adulthood and into my twenties and thirties that I had to heal. That I had lots of stuff that I had to pull apart, unpack, look at. And part of my own personal trauma response is hyper-independence. And in many ways, it served me, but in many ways, it's been really tough on my um, interpersonal relationships. Yeah. But from, from the perspective of the ways that it served me, I've always been fine with traveling and, and you know, been going on an adventure. To me, that, that sense of independence feels so natural to me. Um, in terms of my own healing, I use that that streak of hyper independence to drive my research. And I always believe, look, I've got this brain. If I'm bothering to carry around this brain on uh, in this school on top of my shoulders for my whole life, I may as well use it. And it learned quite well. So I felt like I was blessed with a brain that can learn a lot of things. All I had to do was read and, and be interested and ask questions and go deeper. And that's how I directed my own self-directed healing. And the caveat I'd like to say also, when I use the word healing, I think the word healing, especially in the mental health world, is misused. Healing in my mind and in my experience does not mean getting rid of your trauma. It means pulling it apart, unpacking it, and integrating it as a part of yourself and loving that part of ourself. As children, those of us that had childhood trauma, we didn't ask for that. But as adults, we're accountable to make it make sense, to integrate it, to use it as a tool to understand who we are. And part of that means reparenting ourselves, moving through and pulling apart those layers of shame. And it's also, once you understand those things, you can start with some really powerful tools to start to reprogram the responses instead of the auto reactions that are a result of our our childhood traumas. So, that's what I mean by using the word healing. And yeah. that really opened up my mind in terms of 
of how I approached my own self-directed healing. And those tools became an integrated part of who I am. I cannot not have that be a part of myself because I've used them and I facilitate tools with other people. And that became part of our family culture, which is really, really important. And the more that my son saw me not afraid of facing myself and looking at my my own fallibility and the things that make me human and apologizing, repairing when I made mistakes, when I did actions that were not in alignment with the values that we were creating and, and living, I I was accountable, even though I was a parent. A lot of parents don't apologize to their children, but yep. I did. And that really, I didn't have to teach my son how, how to be familiar with his internal worlds. I modeled that. And it was a safe part of our family culture. And when I said earlier, emotional intelligence was a huge part of our family culture. It was because it was necessary. Um, fear comes up when you're outside of your comfort zone. Sometimes, like I said, we go into reactionary states and we're not quite sure why we're responding in a certain way. And those are the kinds of things that can interrupt a wonderful partnership or a journey. Like we were absolutely, literally taking a journey where many families you don't have to take a journey like we did. Your your journey is raising children. That's that's the journey. Um, but it can interrupt that journey or the piece of that journey if you're not aware of what's happening in the internal worlds. And so these kinds of tools for self-inquiry became part of our family culture. And later when I started to facilitate teen retreats through Project World School, it also became a a massive part of how we unpack things as a group and how we facilitated and created safe spaces and how we address conflict resolution and things like that. That all, it takes, you know, an internal awareness of what the heck is going on? What's alive for you right now? And that's a question I ask all the time. What's alive for you right now? Because there's not one way only that you can answer that. It's whatever is alive will come up as the answer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I really appreciate the way you refer to the healing part of, of it all. I, I think about my own journey and because I didn't unpack and integrate the things that happened to me that's what that's what kept it as a limitation in my life and when we look at those traumas that happened because look a lot of us have had bad things happen in our life and we can't ever take them back and the the idea of taking them back is it's just going to hold on to it in a negative way more so finding those ways to look at it I finally was able to reframe it for myself of, you know, this, this didn't happen to me. It happened for me. It prepared me for something greater and better. I just didn't see it at the time and I couldn't see it at the time because I needed to go through it. And the reintegration part and the integration part is when you can look at that and see that, how it 
can be empowering rather than a limitation. Absolutely. And one of the simplest tools that I use for myself and for my son and all the teens that I work with is asking the question, how is this the best thing that's happened to you? And it it challenges our framework of thinking because we have thought over and over and over that this is the worst thing that's happened to me. Oh, poor me. But now we're causing new neural pathways to be written around this particular topic. And this is what neuroplasticity is. This is this is what changing a fixed mindset to a growth mindset looks like. And it's it's yep. the willingness and ability to experience a new perspective. And that's powerful. Right. And the beautiful thing about it is I, I I mean, we can't say that all humans have that capacity and capability because there are people that have had, you know, physical injuries and brain damage and traumas of that nature that can impair that. But I would go out on a limb and say, if you're listening to this podcast, you have that ability. Yeah. And because most of us have that, have that ability and have that capacity to change those neural pathways and change our mind and, and allow it to work for us rather than against us. Yeah. Agreed. And like anything, it takes practice. Yep. I also like how you talked about them as tools because that's how I think about it as well. Like self-care is they're just tools. You have a, a tool bench full of tools that get used in all different kinds of ways and all different kinds of manners. And it becomes a matter of using them to become familiar with them so that we know which one we need to use in which moment to allow us to show up and participate in the unfolding of life as consciously as possible, as meaningful as possible, as intentional as possible, as purposeful as possible. And the thing that's difficult that I think about with like the educational system, they teach you all these things to be useful for other people, to be useful for your job. But in this in this path that a lot of us are choosing to walk differently in terms of how we want to educate our kids, I feel like there's a bigger emphasis on teaching the person how to be valuable for themselves. And through virtue of them being valuable for themselves, they will be valuable for other people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, We chose not to continue with formal education after the fourth grade. So my son literally is a fifth grade dropout. Although he's <laughs> quite, I, and I say that tongue in cheek, it's really funny to me. And if you've ever heard him speak or watched any of his talks, he's probably one of the most articulate, well-read um, young men out there. He's such an amazing speaker and he reads and he's so thoughtful um, that, you know, it's a tongue in cheek thing. Yeah, he's a fifth grade dropout, but he's He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant because his motivation to learn was intrinsic. It was, it came from within. Mm -hmm. Nobody told him what to focus on. And the world around him became this amazing place to be inspired, to dig deeper, to ask questions. And again, I often talk about this thing that we carry around on the top of our shoulders in, in this skull. It's a learning machine. We've got this thing 
and it learns. It's what it's for, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't need somebody to dictate the the curriculum in order to, you know, achieve the definition of education. I just need, and this is what I discovered um, through our journey, that we really just wanted to develop a strong love of learning. And with that, that'll inspire us to be curious, to research, to problem solve, to ask questions, to um, challenge narratives and challenge status quo and continue like a a two-year-old to say, why, 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 why? I mean, how annoying, but it is not annoying because it's, it's so, it's so wonderful and refreshing to have that excitement of learning about everything. So that, that became our, you know, sort of go to like this is how we're wired because we kept asking why why is why was this building built why did they put it here why is that building different why why was there a war here why are the why is the political situation like that and in order to answer all of those questions we really wanted to know and for us learning in context made learning rich and meaningful definitely definitely I can't help but always think about how common it is for somebody to get out of college and, and get to that point, or maybe that point is at high school for somebody and they're so done with learning. Like they give up, they quit because it's it's been forced upon them for so many years that you have to learn this, you have to do this, you have to do that. And it kills that natural enthusiasm. It kills that intrinsic drive to learn. And for me, when I graduated college, I was like, yep. I'm done with that shit. Let's go. I'm going to go get that job and pay this bill back and do the thing. And, and, you know, a couple of years down the road, I, I finally, when I started this journey for myself, I shut the cable TV off and got rid of those distractions and started reading books. And I'm like, wow, I really like to learn, but I like to learn the things that I want to learn right now. And when I do that, like I pick it up so much faster and easier and it, it adds so much more to my value to to me, and I think about what that does for like my well being and my mental well being. And so I'm I'm curious, like what kind of what kind of stuff do you see with doing the Project World School and walking that different path, like the level of mental well being for those people that you get to work with and what they what they get from that when they're in an environment that they have that freedom to learn the things that they want to learn and not just some forced curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, curriculum by itself is meaningless. It is, it has no meaning unless, you know, it's something that you really want to learn. If you're super curious about it, then, and if there's a curriculum created for you, great use it. But the the compulsory nature of you must learn this and you must learn this and you must learn this and you must do it in this sequence and the scope is this and once you've achieved the thing that I said that you need to learn in the scope and sequence required I'm going to test you we're going to evaluate you and that is not learning that is adding this whole new 
you know, different relationship to the act of learning. And I love what you said, and I'll answer your question in a second, but I love what you said about, you know, you you shook your hands off and you said, I'm done learning until you discovered that you actually like to read. And a lot of adults come back to that because the school experience just sort of grinds it out of you. And that's so wrong. Like, you learn what you want to learn. And I learned also what I wanted to learn because I was intrinsically motivated because I had a goal at the end of it. And because nobody said I couldn't do it. And if they said I couldn't do it, I'd do it anyway, (laughs) because that's just how I am. (laughs) But, um, you know, the idea that you pick up and focus on the things that you're interested in, why in the world do we not across the board from a cultural perspective, approach all education like that? Why do we not trust that children have the ability to say, I like this or I don't like this? We, we take away their sovereignty and the ability to advocate for themselves. And because I removed my son from school at a, an early age, He did have the contrast of being told what to do in terms of his quote unquote education. He had the contrast. And when he applied his own motivation, his own resources based on what he was interested in, it was a completely different story. And I think that speaks a lot about our cultural act of childism, which is treating children as if they're not whole beings, that they cannot self-regulate, that they cannot advocate for themselves, and that they cannot know what's best for themselves. I believe they can. I believe they can do all of that stuff. But from a cultural perspective, Western culture doesn't believe that. They believe children are these like empty vessels that we need to open up their head and pour in our values and the things that we want them to learn. And I believe that they come whole, just as they're perfect as is. They just need to develop who they are and learn their voice and and discover their internal worlds in order to be able to have a path to follow in their external experience. Yeah, definitely. In, In your book, you have a section on teen myths and labels. And one of them being about like the the kid being in constant violation of the, the the parent and you can't be trusted and therefore I'll institute more rules and things of that nature. I couldn't help but think how much those myth those myths and labels are behaviors in response to the authoritarian parenting style. And yeah. just like this over regulation of another human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I didn't speak these words yet, but I consider myself an anarchist, which means I'm, you know, contrary to some people's uh, relationship to the word. Some people believe it just means chaos and and fighting and just craziness. Right. Right. But it's not that. It means literally not giving away your power or sovereignty or consent to somebody else having power over you. And that's it. 
That's really it. It's not a form of government. It's not a form of, of, um, you know, any sort of governance at all. It's, it's not allowing others just by virtue of them having a position to have power over you. And that's how I approached my parenting. I didn't want to be Miro's boss. I didn't want to be the person who made the rules. I didn't want to be the person who had to enforce the rules. I didn't want to be the person who had to punish once the rules were broken. Those were roles I did not want to take on. So instead of having rules in our family, we have values. And I've spoken many times already about Mm -hmm. how simple it is to just check and see if decisions are in alignment or acts or activities or actions, any of those things are in alignment with your core values, because that's the guide that we need to use. We are our own authority. And I wasn't his authority. And here's the the fallacy that most people, you know, immediately object to when they hear the term partnership parenting. You know, culture has told me that I'm the parent, so I make the rules. I make the money. You're living in my house, my house, my rules. Those are all part of the cultural narrative that we inherited. We can say that's not going to work for us. Equality is different than partnership. And I'm going to tell you why. Equality means two people are exactly the same. No, no two people are exactly the same. Right. And, and it's really just that. And that's simple. okay. It's re- and it's okay. Yeah. And it, it is a reductionist way of, of addressing the topic. However, just keeping that in mind, when you enter into a, a partnership with a romantic partner, a business partner, or a child, you all have different skill sets. You all have different likes, needs, uh, attributes, talents, values. And together in a partnership, that makes the partnership much richer with the diversity, right? So as an adult, yes, I made the money. Didn't mean that I was doing it begrudgingly. That just happened to be the role and the talent and the skills that I took on. But I was providing for our family. So my son had ATM card, knew exactly how much money we had, had permission. He didn't actually need permission, but it was our money. So he had access to it. He could spend whatever he wanted at any time. And he never did anything, um, you know, like irrational. He was always very cognizant of what our budget was, how much we had to live on, um, you know, what things cost and things like that. Um, and there was trust. This was our money. Why would he, why would he go out and spend our money and, and put us in, you know, in danger? Like he would never do that. He just, I knew he wouldn't because this was our journey. This was our trip. And in partnership means you're living in a trusting environment. And the more that you trust somebody, the more they step up and become the person who is worthy of trust. And I know that's really scary for a lot of parents. We don't want to deal with the mistakes. And, but let me tell you, the mistakes, the time to make mistakes is in childhood. Don't make a big mistake when you're an adult. 
because there are huge natural consequences. When you're a child, it's usually smaller mistakes and we lived without punishment or rules. So I helped him unpack what the natural consequences were of the actions that he chose to take. And that, and without judgment, without anger, without like, you did this, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It was just like, okay, so this happened. Um, what do you think the effects are going to be on you? What do you, how do you see these effects on our family? And on our journey and on our lives and, you know, in a very calm, non-accusatory way, we were able to unpack that and face it together as partners. I wasn't pitted against him to be his authority. And it's, I mean, he's 24 now, like I said, and I can't think of of a closer human being that, you know, I can't think of another person I'm closer with. He's just, our, our connection is so strong. This is what, this is what parenting should be like. This is what parenting relationships, this is what we're working towards. Right. Definitely. I, I agree. One of the other things that comes to my mind with this stuff, I, I, I tend to think and look about, look at all the different like anti-bully campaigns and efforts that have been put forth to that in our culture, in our society over the past couple of years, yet how little it's actually done to help eradicate bully behavior. And I start to ask like, why do our kids continue to get bullied? And I start thinking about, oh, that's because we bully. Authoritarian approach to anything is bully behavior. Anytime you use a position of power, over somebody else that is contributing to bully behavior and whether at the end of the day, our kids are going to mimic the things we do. The old, the old, uh, do as I say, not as I do is it's a bunch of bullshit and it doesn't work. They're going to do things that are either intrinsically authentic to what they want to do, or they're going to mimic the people around them. Absolutely. And it's a learned behavior too. Absolutely. And behavior is what our culture focuses in on. And that's short, that's short-sighted, that never works. Modifying behavior works in dogs, but it doesn't work in human beings. We need to get to the core of why the behavior is happening. Right. For example, neuro, neurobiologists and neuroscientists have proved over and over that addiction doesn't come from some gene inside of you that is, you know, that, that makes a person, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody who can get an addiction. What's the word I'm looking for? Easily susceptible, I guess. Susceptible. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) The the, The words just don't come out. Yeah. It's not about like being born with this gene that makes you susceptible to, to being addicted. No, it's proven that it comes from not having secure attachments from your childhood. That's the result of, of, of addiction is the result of not having a secure attachment. So if we know that, then we need to focus in on the parenting and the connection that parents have with their children. This, this is huge. This is, I mean, parenting 
is such a serious, you know, right. thing. I mean, you know, we have to have a license to hunt or to fish or to drive a car. <laughs> All right. I'm an anarchist. I'm not into any of that stuff anyway, the government regulation. But like the whole idea is, okay, there's government foresight in these activities. But the most important thing, like raising a human being, should we not, you know, get my book in every household in the United, you know, in, in the world? Because I've got tools in there. I've got strategies for partnership parenting. I've got, you know, all sorts of incredible things in this book that can help change the lives of families from day one. And I think that to me is so much more important than, you know, how do we modify a child's behavior? I'm not going to, that's, that's manipulation. And that's, even if you do it through like gentle parenting or peaceful parenting, you still have an agenda. And that agenda is acting as an authority. You might be doing it with a soft voice, but there's any agenda to change or manipulate somebody's behavior is an authoritarian act. Yeah, definitely. And it can be hard to yeah. to create that change and shift. It it's something that we actively work on around here and you know, we're not perfect at it, but we're we're doing the best we can to create that shift and change and be a part of that shift and change. And I know just on paying attention to how I have like a physiological response, how much better I feel when I have a conversation with Rosalie that is from a prioritizing connection with her over correcting and directing whatever it was. And I know if I feel that, she feels that. Yeah. Yeah, because let's face it, if you scold them and tell them to come down from running up the the slide the wrong way or whatever the thing is, right? That is not important. This running up the slide the wrong way is not as important and allowing them to do it as the scolding and the teaching them that their behavior must, they must get approval from authority, right? Teaching them that approval from authority is really creating a, you know, mentality of people that will follow follow instructions. Okay. Maybe that's good for some people, but I I want a rule breaker. I want somebody who knows themselves. And I'm not talking about chaos. I'm talking about somebody who's not afraid to say that is not just, I am not doing this because this is not just, this is not in alignment with the value of equality or the value of whatever the thing is, right? I'm not doing this. We need, we need change makers. We need people who know themselves. We need people that are self-actualized. This world right now is at a critical point on many different aspects. But I think the only way that we can find a healthy planet and a healthy culture and a healthy sense of humanity is by questioning narratives, status quo, and making changes, speaking up for what's right. Right. And there's two things to pull from some of that 
for me. The first one is kind of related to some of the other other stuff we've already talked about and some of the stuff that you mentioned for your, for your journey. But this idea of like, if we're going to have kids, we need to take the responsibility seriously. It's yeah. not it's not a hunting license, it's not a fishing license, it's not a driver's license. This is so much more. Yeah. And to me, that is, we all have the responsibility to unpack our own shit. Yep. And do that work because that's the only way that we're going to be able to show up and serve that other human in a in a good way, in a positive way, in a place that contributes to their mental health and well-being. And then the other part that that extends to that we're hitting on, thinking about like the authoritarian parenting and the correcting and directing of, oh, don't run up the slide the wrong way, all this stuff, and them having to ask for permission and this and that. On the scale of mental health and well-being, if we're always operating in that space as a parent and that child needs to ask us for permission for this and that and all those things, it's going to destroy their own confidence and their own thinking and ability to make their own choices for themselves and their well-being. It's going to be destroyed. They're not going to have it. It's going to be gone. And they're going to grow up believing that their desires, needs, preferences are not important. Right. And cue toxic people-pleasing behavior patterns. I'm a recovering one. Same, same. <laughs> There's still days where I'm like, ah, oh, don't fucking do that, yeah. Ross. <laughs> Stop it. Right. <laughs> you know, and you're at 38 and it's still, there's still days where it haunts me. My whole life I struggled with romantic relationships because I was the nice guy and did that whole thing and I never honored my own self. Yeah. 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 Oh, I get that one. I had a different pattern. Mine was, Pull them in, push them away. Pull them in, push them away. That's that's the product of a disorganized attachment style, and all of that. I, I'm accountable for that. I'm an adult. Right. I need to heal that, right? Yeah, I mean, the way a way to look at it. There's always more than two paths, but there's two main paths. There's two main trunks to this. Is one you can be pissed off and blame your parents for how fucked up you are. Or two, you can unpack it and resolve it and move forward. One of those trunks dead ends and lies in stagnation. The other trunk goes forward and goes into the fruits of the tree. Yeah. It's a choice. Always a choice. It is a choice. And a lot of people from a subconscious perspective will choose the first trunk and then layer it with some sort of addiction or numbing out because it's not really in alignment with with your human nature. It just isn't. I think a lot of this stems from our cultural relationship to comfort, right? A lot of us talk about, you know, you've heard the term you're in your comfort zone or you're outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And my son and I have taken in a way to sort of dimensionalize that in a way that makes more sense. So in your comfort zone is really important to recognize because we all need that. We need the space to recuperate, regenerate, to, to rest. That's really important. Um, but 
conventional culture says, well, if you don't feel that, take this pill because that's stress and anxiety. You know, you don't need to feel anything but those things. You always should be comfortable. And travel for us gave us an introduction to always feeling uncomfortable. We were always outside of our comfort zone. So instead of calling it outside of our comfort zone, we call that the stretch zone. And the stretch zone helped us renegotiate our relationship to comfort and discomfort. Because in the stretch zone, we're expanding, we're learning, we're growing. And that's all the things that we wanted to do. And it feels good to expand, grow. Like even when I exercise, like the next day I'm sore, but that's a good sore. I like that feeling. So like we talked about earlier, it's that reframing of the experience. And then sort of the final part of the comfort zone, you've got your comfort zone, the stretch zone right outside. And right outside of the stretch zone, we must honor that there is something called the panic zone. And that is your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And that's really important to recognize too. But modern culture, you're either in it or out of it. And we use the language of, I am in fight, flight, or freeze. You know, I am shutting down. I, you know, I'm stressed. And that kind of language to being discomfort, to to experiencing discomfort is an injustice to the growth that happens when you're uncomfortable, right? right? Modern culture today, unfortunately, is path, 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 oh, I can't say the word. Pathological? Path. Jized. You have to put jized at the end. I can't say the word. You could say it for me. <laughs> pa- pathologicalized? Yes. That. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, man, no. you're asking me to sound out big words. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. I can write it. I just can't <laughs> speak it. But it's it's created this relationship to these terms that are used inappropriately, I think. Um, I've heard teenagers use the term... Um, you know, I, that person is giving me a um, panic attack. Really? Like, we don't want to use terms like that. You know, you could say maybe I am actually experiencing a panic attack, but every time I see that person, they give me a panic attack just means that you don't like that person or that person is uncomfortable for you to be around. It's not really a panic attack. Let's use the right terminology. It's it's important that the terminology, the 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 psychology terminology, has become a part of the the you know um, like the vast vernacular of of modern culture. But it's not being it's being misused. Right. And yeah, it path it does that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that word that I can't say. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> I love I love the the comfort zone and the stretch zone and I love those analogies. Analogies always help conceptualize and understand things so much neater and cooler. And I really like the idea because I promote pushing the comfort zone. I promote like the thing that you want to do, be, experience, and accomplish is just outside the comfort zone. There's it's in your stretch zone, right? But I also like how you talked about because this is something I don't talk about and I like it and I want to use it with the people that I work with the idea of coming back to your comfort zone to recuperate 
I talk about recovery with my powerlifting clients because you don't get stronger from lifting weights. You get stronger from recovering from lifting weights. It's all about recovery. And the same goes true too for like our mental development, our mental health, our mental well-being. We have to have that, that time to recover. We can't just be all growth. We have to recover. But I think it's important to articulate that coming back to the comfort zone and organizing that comfort zone to be a a place of recovery, not a place to suppress and avoid and get away from. Yeah, I totally agree. I, and coping mechanisms are that are very common in our culture. One of the most common is zoning out and that's, you know, the scrolling, that's the, the Netflix binge watching, which I do sometimes, (laughs) you know, but that's, it's, it's the numbing out. And the question is, what is it that we're avoiding by choosing to numb out Right. and our relationship to our own emotions, our own internal world has got to be normalized. We've got to focus. This is why I teach teens these tools. I teach teens these tools. We practice them. We, we pull apart and look at what's there. And the fact that they're doing this in their adolescence where they've got the most neuroplasticity, they can rewrite old ways of thinking so it doesn't become a part of their whole adulthood. And they've created the neural pathways to remember the internal processes so they can access that anytime. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely fantastic. Because the other thing I, I tend to look at suppression is depression. Oh yeah. So we have to, we have to cope with those things in a, in a healthy way, in a way to integrate. There is a a section in your book here that I think is applicable to this idea. And I want to hit on it real quick. The, the trauma train, the stages and tools for processing those with those emotions. What is, what is it? Let's go into that a little bit. When I, pulled apart the trauma train. One of the teens that I, um, that ha- was in my class named it that I was calling it the COVID coaster. And she's like, Nope, lady, this is not just about COVID. <laughs> this is about trauma. And I was bringing, bringing it into the framework of a collective trauma that all of humanity experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the most prolific experiences most people have in this time, right? To be a part of that. And when we're experiencing trauma, there's all these different stages and you may start in one, one point and you move to the next, then you go back, then you go forward, then you come back. And I explain all the different stages. There's, there's the creation, there's the denial, there's, there's all of these experiences that we have when we're experiencing trauma. And that, that's our, our human way, our mind's way of dealing with it. But the thing that's really important to point out about the trauma train and the connection to emotions, which I'll get into next, but the most important stage of the trauma train is the last stage. And that's the integration stage, making sense of what happened and, and, and really unpacking it and pulling it apart. Doesn't mean that you're fixing it. Doesn't mean you're making it go away. Like 
the same definition of healing, right? We're, we're making it make sense to our experience and perception as a human being. And you can't do that while you're experiencing the trauma. It takes time and space to be away from that. So when I wrote the book, we were still, you know, I wrote it in 2021. We were still experiencing. And, and for the most part, I still see people wearing masks and I still see a lot of people um, with a lot of fear right now. I am, it's fearing other human beings. And to me, that's really the, the hardest part of this whole COVID experience because people were weaponized, you know, the perception of another human being who could get you sick or ill or kill you. That that's the weaponization of, of humans. And that's contrary to the human experience. We're wired to connect. Yeah. And this is such a, difficult thing for us to make sense of. We couldn't do it. I think the world is starting to make it make sense now. And I see a lot of coming back together, but many issues around, you know, people's behavior and people's choices during the, the, the height of the pandemic became a divisive political issue that we should have never gone there. We should have protected one another. We should not have victimized and pointed fingers at one another. And, you know, that kind of, you know, and I'm, I, I'm born American. I haven't been living in the United States for 15 years, almost. I just started my 15th year away and being outside of the country that I'm from, I'm noticing the divisive language in all politics and social gatherings and social movements. And I I just, I'm wondering what brought us to this point. I didn't recognize that from my own childhood, maybe just because I was immersed in it. But to me, that's going to cause havoc on people's mental health Definitely. and until we can start pulling apart what it meant to us what the messaging of fear fear messaging how that played in our own internal worlds um we're just going to keep perpetuating more of the same and that really is frightening to me that's really frightening i agree i agree the the weaponization of it, the the way it gets divided, the way we divide ourselves. I tend to look at it as, you know, we all have that thing or things that hurt our soul. Yeah. And we didn't ask for it, but it's our job to cope with it, heal it, integrate it, those things. If we don't, we express it onto other people and we hurt people, hurt people, hurt people hurt people. And so that like continues. And so if we don't do that work for ourselves, we project it into our community, whether it be just the family household or further out, but that just, that ripples and it might just be a little bit of a, a, a pebble in a pond, but it ripples. And when that happens and everybody starts contributing to that, then you get a greater collective community pain, hurt body. And like, 
then that gets expressed. I mean, that's what war is. That's just a, an extreme, the, the most extreme version of that community's collective pain body is that is through war and through wanting to eliminate the enemy. There is no enemy. enemy. We are all connected. Yeah, I agree. Have you ever been to a country that had a very heavy pain body as a cultural uh, norm? I have not. I have. I have, I have, and you could feel it. The air, we've a couple of places and this was our perception. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the people in these countries. They're beautiful people. Um, but the, the feeling of heaviness and pain, say in Nicaragua. And also we, we experienced that in Cambodia and of course, parts of Poland too. <laughs> Yeah. Poland was was a tough one for us. Um, but we recognize what it means to have a cultural heaviness of victimization, of war, of internal sort of, you know, questioning. Uh, we heard we sat down and had had you know coffee and tea with locals all in Cambodia and they told us about you know their mom had to their mom and dad slept they they had a wooden house with stilts and they slept under the floorboards above the stilts at night to assure that um, nobody would come in in the middle of the night and kill them a neighbor would do that and and neighbors were um, they were commissioned to tell secrets about their neighbors and they'd be rewarded. So that sense of not coming together, the absolute opposite of that and the fear of violence and the fear and threat of demise of human demise is such a traumatic experience. And, and this is in, my opinion, you know, people are still losing limbs in the killing fields because of the, the, um, uh, what is that called? The, the things that blow up. Where are those? The landmines. Landmines. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Boy, I'm, I'm missing all these words today, <laughs> but the, the landmines are still exploding. And so the, the, the cultural nature they still haven't started their integration. It's still alive. This is this is a culture that is feeling a lot of trauma. Still, it's still alive. It's there's not one single human being in all of Cambodia that wasn't affected by the Khmer Rouge, the the the, the revolution that took place. It's it's heartbreaking, but I also see humans as resilient. We can move through this, but we've got to remove these external um, influences that are continuing to re-traumatize our communities. Right, because all they do is create disconnection, disconnection from ourself, our soul, one another, and that's not the natural no. vibration of the human experience. That's not what we're what we're here for. Yeah. And I, I know I, I've never ne- I've been to some different countries, 
I, I've been to Poland, and as, as you mentioned that, I, I real I, I thought about that. I'm like, you know, I, I there was a heaviness there that I I didn't quite think about at the time, so that makes sense. And I think there was a time a while back where I realized, like, I've been I have this like chronic light sleep thing, and I I won't sleep through the quietest noise. And part of that is I feel like I I am the protector of my family, yeah. which sure. I am. That is part of my role. Why do I have to be that? Why does that have to exist? Why do I need to feel the need to protect my family to such a degree when we live in a safe community? And I like meditated on that really heavily one day. And like it, it came to me that it was, it was passed along to me from my grandpa who fought in world war two. And so that's a, like that can, that's to me, I started thinking about that and how that impacted me, but then also other communities that have experienced far greater like communal pain bodies and how that gets passed along for many years, even many years past the event. So I can only imagine how that experience for you to be in countries like that was, was impactful on the work that you do. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I'm, I'm walking through the planet and I just want to heal the world. I just want the world to, to understand our own humanity, the richness of it, the imperfection of it. Yeah. I, I just, you know, that's, that's part of who I am. I just want everybody to be okay. <laughs> but it takes work. It's got to take more more than just one person obviously yeah. there's a lot of people who want that but it takes it we've got to have this upward swing there's got to be a tipping point where this becomes the common desire and it will happen yeah no i agree and i definitely want to be mindful of your time here I, we've been chatting for a bit and uh i could Always. i could go on <laughs> i could go on for for quite a bit longer so two more questions for you We interrupt this show with a brief message. This podcast was created through a strong sense of belonging. Becoming a parent brings a massive learning opportunity. One of the most important things to know is that every child's most basic need is to feel a sense of belonging and significance. As I learned this and reflected on it, I came to the realization that we as adults still have that need to feel a sense of belonging. I also soon realized the most powerful and sustainable way to attain that sense of belonging was to create it within ourselves. External validation is fleeting. Cultivating our relationship with ourselves to create our own sense of belonging from the inside out is what is sustainable. This concept has inspired me to construct the Belonging Blueprint, a personal development course that is available to you now. In this course, you will learn to navigate your life with the confidence you could only dream about in the past. I'll give you the tools you need to create your own Belonging Blueprint that will guide you to more ease and flow in your life. To get more information and enroll today, you can click the link in the show notes or message me directly. Now back to the show. The first one being along these lines of like wanting to help heal the world and help heal people. This can be some really taxing work on us as individuals. What do you do for yourself to stay in this space where you can show up and be a facilitator for other people and, and be in this space of care and love and compassion for other people. What, what's your like go-to thing that keeps you grounded and centered and connected to yourself? Three things. Three things. Carlos Chato, 
and watch. Uh, those are my three dogs. Okay. <laughs> the dogs give me joy. I've got wonderful relationships in my life. I paint, I garden. Um, I, you know, I, I very badly rock climb. <laughs> make me feel alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. One of my paintings, <laughs> but you know, my humanness, my, my just, just tapping into my fallibility, my, you know, imperfections and celebrating those things um, and helping other people to recognize and celebrate those things. And then also knowing that I'm living my passion and purpose and that is serving teens. Nice. And that for me is the transformation of my childhood trauma into purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I love it. I love it. And speaking of your passion and your purpose, your book is chock full of just gold, absolute gold. And I definitely look forward to digging into that even more with more intention and more purpose when I have a little bit more time when I get through the book I'm in now. But it's it's 330 pages of just sheer wonderful information to empower parents to show up, to, to help teens to show up. What is your favorite part of that book and why? All right. So I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. Um, The book is not about changing your children's behavior so it's convenient for you. It's not about that. (laughs) Perfect. Um, The book is not about fixing your kids. The book is introducing ideas around understanding and integrating your internal world with yourself. And that's the you that you bring to the relationship. So the invitation in the beginning of the book is number one, to facilitate, learn, step into the role of being a facilitator, not a teacher. You're facilitating, connect through vulnerability um, and the way that you can do that is use the tools in the book yourself as a parent. You're going to discover about your internal worlds. Then share that with your children. And I know that sounds frightening to many people because most parents carry the air, the air of authority and perfection. Mm-hmm. And that's just how children relate to their parents. Um, we need to switch that up. We're not their authority. We're there. We're granted the privilege of guiding them through their young formative years. That's all. That's all. They're not our property. They're not ours to fix. They're not ours to, to fill up with our perspectives. They're ours to help them pull out so they could be the best versions of themselves. They already are born the version of themselves that they will be. So, yeah, do the work. Understand that this is going to be a journey for you as a parent. None of that is said on the cover of my book or the description because nobody would buy it. (laughs) But my favorite part of the book is the invitation to connect with parents in a real, true, meaningful way. And that took me being very vulnerable 
and transparent about my own childhood, you know, uh, experiences and the beliefs that came out of those experiences about myself and some of the things that I did that were not, you know, I'm not proud of, you know, drugs and, and some of the, the decisions I made for myself during my adolescence. Right. But I'm being really authentic and, and really transparent about that. So you can, and I did that with my son and you could do that too. And if you read my son's um, foreword, he actually speaks to that. He says something to the effect of most parents, most of his friends' parents are feared or they are, you know, um, worshiped. They're put on a pedestal and worshiped. I didn't do any of that. I, I didn't, he wasn't, he, he wasn't fearful of me and he didn't see me as a perfect being because I wasn't afraid to show my vulnerability and fallibility and, and all of these other things that make me very human. Yeah. That's amazing. I absolutely love that answer. Like that, that, that's the answer that you say that throw caution to the wind and you no, know, I, I mean, <laughs> I feel like anybody that walks this journey of self-improvement, self-development needs to get to that point where there's the radical personal responsibility. So any of these things that, you know, if you want your, you want your kid's mental health to be better, it's probably going to involve doing the things for yourself. And I think one of the things that a lot of people forget is just the, like the leadership role that we serve as parents and the core, the, the absolute most important core connection to leadership is, is ownership and ownership through example and leading by example. So I'm not surprised. I was not surprised anyway, when I started looking through and, and digging around in your book that it's about the parent. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Lainey. Well, I thank you so very much for your time. It was absolutely amazing getting to chat with you. Uh, I appreciate your time and hopefully we'll connect again in the future. Thank you, Ross. And thank you for doing this work and getting these words and messages and information out to the public. Yeah. I'm really grateful. There are people as committed as you are. So thank you. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for joining Project Unchained today. It's important to note that I'm not a doctor nor a licensed therapist. I'm just a guy who is passionate about helping empower others to break free from their limiting thoughts and beliefs to have extraordinary life experiences. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That will ensure that this podcast can reach more people. We're more powerful together, so please do share this with others. I'm always happy to engage with you, so please do reach out via social media or email if you'd like to chat. A special thank you to my very talented cousin, Galen Lee, for the intro and outro music to this show. The song is Lost in the Woods from her 2018 album, Learning How to Stay. You can find Galen's albums on Bandcamp, Spotify, and ViolinScratches.com. Until next time, make your life experience extraordinary. Let's get unchained.
give yourself a don't give yourself away.